If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Horse welfare and safety are of utmost importance where humans have any interaction with horses. Within the courses at International Horse College, we only utilise methods that promote safe and humane ways of interaction between horses and humans. We only support safe methods of educating riders, handlers and trainers about horse welfare. Internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Today's guest on Horse Chats is Dr. Rachel Hogg. She started off as a competitive rider, specialising in dressage and eventing, but now she's a psychology academic. She's done a PhD in equestrian partnership. She'd explored the unique sporting relationship between the horse and rider in elite equestrian sports. Her interests now include horse-human relationships, equine-assisted psychotherapy, and the culture of veterinarians. How are you, Rachel? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really um, looking forward to chatting with you today. Look, I'm looking forward to chatting to you. You know, very interesting, some of the areas that you're working on now, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you in a bit more depth within our chat. Yeah. Now, we normally start off with a favourite quote, though. What have you got for us? Okay. (laughs) I've got some interesting, I had to think about this question. Um, One of my biggest problems probably as an academic and in life generally is doing too much of everything. And when I I thought about this quote, there are a couple that jumped into my mind, but probably the core quote that has resonated with me as an academic, um, and it's now been something that I've applied backwards in a sense to my interactions with animals and to Um, a lot of different areas in life. It's not a quote that has to do with horses directly, um, but it's from Hugh McKay, who is a psychologist. He's a sociologist. He has written a number of um, books, and he says, the answer closes the question. Stay with the question. And this has become a really um, important kind of guiding principle for me um, as a researcher, um, examining human animal lives, there are some really complex questions that can emerge when you start to think about animal lives in particular um, and horse-human interaction. And there's a tendency often for us to seek certainty, whether it's through scientific practice um, or whether it's through our own ideologies that have guided us at, up to a certain point in our lives. So Thinking about the question um, and, and going back to that question has become a really important thing for me and, and just sitting with questions, particularly when those questions are uncomfortable. Um, if, if something about your relationship with animals or the way that you interact with animals unsettles you, I think that's really important information to attend to um, and, and to think about. Um, but the other thing that I guess I wanted to note here is I've become really conscious in recent years of how much of my own dialect and the dialect of people that I talk to relies on kind of colloquial expressions that denigrate 
animals. Um, and there are, you know, when we talk about human beings as being a filthy little pig or, um, you know, silly goat or whatever, there's all kinds of derogatory terms that we use in a colloquial sense that reduce humans because we're associating them with animals. So I've become really conscious of the way in which um, language influences how we think about animals um, and how we relate to them. Yes, it's an interesting relationship, yeah. Rachel, I know you started off on a sheep and wheat farm and I think you started riding, you know, you'd said when you were seven, but do you have an early memory, something that you might have done with your sister, something that you might have learned that's contributed towards your knowledge about horses? That's a really good question. You know, it's being exposed to animals, particularly in a farming context, can influence you in a variety of different ways. And it's difficult to recall, you know, the exact moment um, or what kind of forces around us influenced us to think, yes, let's get into horses. But I, I really strongly remember growing up on a beautiful property and creating endless cross-country courses with brooms, <laughs> with mops, buckets, whatever we could find. And we would build these courses and then we would jump them ourselves. And I don't know what my parents thought, <laughs> but we were having a great time. Um, but my mum had always loved horses, but she had moved uh, around multiple times growing up herself, which had, had prevented her parents from ever really being able to let them ride and have horses. And she was really firmly committed to encouraging us in this area. And of course, infamously, my dad recalls this all the time. Um, somebody said to him, if you let them have horses, it'll stave the boys off for a couple of years. Now, dad was aware of the fact that horses were quite an expensive endeavor. So he was a little bit reluctant. Um, but that piece of advice, I think, tipped him over the edge and eventually <laughs> persuaded um, them to get us ponies, which which they did. Um, so we had just, I mean, I look back on that time in my life and it wasn't actually always the idyllic experience that you envisage. We were completely novice um, yep. when it came to horses. We'd never owned a horse previously. And because of the financial pressure associated with farming, um, we ended up buying the first horse that we bought um, was actually not really suitable at all for, for people who had not had much experience with horses and she was cheap. So we, we bought her, but it was really a, quite a terrible mistake. So I was desperately fond of that pony. Her name was Bonnie, but she was looking back on it. Um, she created an enormous amount of fear for me. She would um, just she would just bolt, basically, um, whenever she got into an open space. I don't think she was any more interested in being ridden by young children <laughs> um, than most retired broodmares. Um, so... That was a rather rocky start in a sense. I really loved her and I really loved all horses. Um, but her unpredictability created this this fear um, and our relationship became somewhat of a matter of survival in some ways as I was sort of bucked off and dumped. And both of my sisters were lucky enough to land ponies who were a little bit more suitable for young riders. Yep. So they were doing well and I was really finding this relationship tricky, but I was super, super keen to continue. And my mum, I think, said to me afterwards, you never, ever, ever said, I don't want to do this anymore, but you mm. were scared. And when yep. you were scared. So we went on the hunt for a, another pony and ended up landing a beautiful grey 
pony whose name is Carlson. Um, he had been horribly abused. So I think at the point when we bought him, had had we been maybe two months later than we were, um, he would not have still been with us. He was in, in a terrible um state of malnourishment. Um, he was infested with lice and worms and he was extremely underweight. So he was physically quite broken um, when we got him and he was terrified of men, very mistrusting of humans all around. And I was eight by this stage and I didn't really see it as my mission to restore his confidence in humankind. I just loved horses and I loved him. Um, and we kind of restored each other in a way. So that was a really powerful turning point for me um, mm -hmm. at a young age and seeing the influence that horses can have. Um, and somewhat remarkably, especially given what he has suffered in his life, he's still with us. So he turns 30 in November. Wow. Um, so wow. <laughs> we're, we're quite lucky to still have him. Mm -hmm. um, but he, he's been an amazing influence. So he's a really big part of my first um, experience of, of the kind of influence that horses could have. Mm. And I like the way that you said where you gave confidence to each other, not mm. coming in as an eight-year-old mm. girl with a plan like that, but, but you know, good story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. we healed each other. Um, and he has remained, he, he, he's, he's always been affected by his previous experiences. He doesn't trust very easily. He's very slow to sort of get to know. He's not the easiest horse. He has a, he has a story. Um, and he has a story that we don't really fully no, um, because yes. we didn't we didn't have him, and we don't know exactly what happened to him. But the scars are there. Um, but he he showed an emotional connection um, with me at that point um, that he's really not probably showed since. Um, mm -hmm. And that bond, I think those bonds and the bonds that I had with um, one particular horse um, that I had after him really influenced me. Um, in ways that I didn't recognise at the time but became quite pivotal to the research that I ended up pursuing. Okay. Now, talking about that research, because you said that you're a um, psychology academic, so I think you studied psychology first, but you've still gone back to horses. What brought you? Was it like something, an opportunity that came up or what happened? Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I... Um, embarked on an undergraduate degree in psychology and the turning point I'd always I, I, I had remained at Charles Sturt University because I wanted to stay close to home at that point I was still competing horses but I hadn't really envisaged combining psychology and horses um, in fact psychology has quite a long history as a discipline of dismissing animal lives. Um, and it's because of that in the 21st century, I was able to do research on horse-human interaction that was actually really, really broad um, because there's still, it's a growing field, but there's still not a huge amount of research on human-animal relationships, particularly um, horse-rider relationships. Mm. Um, so I got to my fourth year of study. This was my honours year. And it was at that point when I distinctly remember walking into my former honours student um, supervisor's office 
um, Dr. Jean Hodgins, who is still at CSU and has been a wonderful advocate of mine over the years, despite his own reticence around horses. Um, and I walked into Jean's office and he said to me, what would you like to research? And I was taken aback for a moment, not because I hadn't thought about it, but because I didn't necessarily envisage that I would get to do something that I really cared about. And, you know, Jean said to me, well, look, you have an opportunity to do what you really want to do. So what is that? And I knew that it was something to do with horses. I didn't know exactly what that would look like. And I started to think about what the project might entail. And of course, as fate would have it, probably about two weeks after that, around that time, I actually had quite a serious horse riding accident. Um, So I was in hospital at the beginning of that year. And my honours research um, examined anxiety in equestrian athletes in relation to falls and injuries and things like that. So there was this weird kind of segue (laughs) between life and art. Um, But that that was the turning point for me. I, at that stage, probably still really envisaged that I would go on to become a clinical psychologist because that's the dominant model of what psychology looks like um, in the media particularly. Um, But I absolutely loved doing research. It just, everything kind of changed for me at that moment. And I realized that this was something that I could do and it could be something that I could do on things that really mattered to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And at that point, equestrianism was really at the forefront of that. Um, So that was really where my interests began to combine. And I am forever grateful to Jean for allowing me the flexibility um, to research horse-human relationships, despite the fact that he probably wouldn't like me saying this, but I think he'd probably be okay with it because it's pretty well known that he's very um, tentative around horses and we have lots of jokes about his daughter one day getting a pony, but there, there wasn't a lot of interest in, in equestrian relationships at the time, so he was very accommodating of me in allowing me to research that. Good. Good. Tell us three things, you know, if you had to pull out three things from that research, what would you say are the most important Mm. things that you learned, things that were a bit of a surprise to you even? Yeah, okay, that's an excellent question because there are a lot of things that I learned and I had a lot of unlearning to do as well because I had grown up in that sporting environment. So my PhD examined um, elite equestrian athletes and I am by no means was I ever an elite rider but I had grown up in a competitive um, equestrian context I was quite familiar with that world Um, and yet at the same time I was completely unfamiliar with certain aspects of it so three things that really stood out for me that emerged from that research that confronted me and surprised me um, and has continued I suppose these things have continued to fuel how I approach work now Um, first of all the elite sporting context is vastly different to the amateur context. And when I started doing the research, I planned to interview elite riders and amateur riders. And as the research continued, um, we made a decision to focus on the elite context because in that space, um, and increasingly so now in the 21st century, um, riders are riding professionally the work that they do with horses is their job. Um, So there's a tremendous kind of narrative that's building around the um, pragmatic side of equestrianism. Um, And a lot of the riders that I interviewed and spoke to 
struggled with managing something that previously had been a passion, a hobby, something that was tremendously personally important to them, but had now become their work and their source of income. Um, and of course, in that elite space, a lot of riders don't um, have the luxury of having full control over the horses that they work with. Often those horses are um, owned by third parties because of the cost of um, owning a horse that is an elite level animal. Um, and it was quite notable after the London Olympics. I remember Charlotte talking after her win with Allegro about how the period leading up to the to the final um, round of competition was one of the most stressful periods of her career because she knew if she won gold, there was a really big chance that Vallegro would be sold out from under her. Um, and that's a really stressful kind mm. of space in which yep. to compete and pursue your goals. Um, so that was definitely one key thing. Um, another key thing that I think emerged from this work was the ambivalence around what the horse rider relationship means for sporting outcomes. So often um, in the media, there's a really strong sense of partnership. We, you mentioned this word earlier. It's often used to describe the horse rider relationship. Um, and there is an expectation from the public and also probably within the equestrian fraternity um, that strong horse rider relationships are absolutely paramount to being successful as an equestrian athlete. Um, and it was a really important finding of my research to start to think about some of the nuances of that because while that was the case for some of the elite riders that I spoke to, um, there were plenty of riders who were um, ambivalent about it insofar as some of them felt that they could be quite successful in the absence of a really strong relationship um, if a rider is very, very skilled. Um, and then some of them actually described the opposite, so being inhibited competitively um, by having a very strong horse rider relationship. And this was particularly apparent in some disciplines. So one discipline in particular um, was endurance riding. Um, I interviewed an endurance rider from South Africa who had had numerous offers for one of her horses in particular. Um, most of these offers had come from the Arab Emirates and the money um, was enormous. So it was a really poor business decision on her part not to sell that horse. Um, but she wouldn't sell him because she has a tremendous bond and relationship with this animal and she values him above almost anything else. So it was a real ethical quandary for her. And, and she said to me, you know, I'm actually a lot less competitive because of um, the depth of the relationships that I have with my horses. So that, that was probably another really important thing. And then the final thing I would, I would describe that came from that research that confronted me and educated me because this is not something um, I had thought about a great deal up until doing this research was the language that we use to describe animals and what that means for the relationships that we have with them. Um, the term anthropomorphism obviously um, usually is used to refer to attributing human emotions or mental states to animals. And in scientific circles, doing that, being anthropomorphic is considered 
quite often it's considered to be a, a fallacy. It's considered to be an error of thinking. Um, and there are lots of critiques of, you know, humanizing animals and how problematic that can be. Um, but the language that people use matters and we have to be really careful, I think, um, around dismissing so-called anthropomorphism because it makes the assumption in our dismissal of that language, we make the assumption that animals cannot or do not have complex emotional lives. Um, and certainly they may or may not um, be capable of, of things that human beings are capable of. But when we close the question around that and around animals, um, we perpetuate the human-animal divide, um, which can be problematic as well. So quite a bit of my PhD ended up focusing on anthropomorphism and its implications. Not so much whether it's right or wrong to anthropomorphize, but what implications does that have um, for the relationships that equestrians have with their horses? And the take-home message was actually that informed anthropomorphism um, was really critical in creating a strong horse rider relationship because often being anthropomorphic is saying, I know how this animal feels and I know what it's thinking. And you might be wrong or you might be right, but making attributions, making empathic attributions about animals can lead to much closer relationships um, with them. And, and I would also argue that it's almost impossible not to be anthropomorphic because we have human perspectives and we apply those our human perspectives to animal lives there's no there's no other option but to apply our human perspectives um, so how we do that matters mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rachel there's so many questions you know I, I've got these other two areas that that I'd like to talk to you about but even so you know I'm coming back and, and you're saying just right through there, those three things, I just thought, wow, there's, there's just lots of questions. Um, I'm sure we, we'd love to have you back again. The anthropomorphism, it's the implications, isn't it? it you know, we often talk mm. about humanising our horses, but then you talked earlier about using expressions of describing people, yeah. you know, and so it's sort of yeah. working both ways there. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, there's a quote, and this is going back to, to the 80s, and I think it was a philosopher who said, you know, the category of beast, brute, and animal has been used to stand for human members of our society thought to be inferior. Um, and at one time or another, blacks, American Indians, Irish infants, children, women, the poor, um, have all been characterized as primitive, wild, and savage. Um, so some of the, um, a lot of the elite riders who I spoke to during my PhD described their horses in incredibly detailed, elevated terms, terms that would be described by um, some scientists as highly anthropomorphic and, and probably problematic in that same sense. Um, but really what emerged was these equestrians are doing really complex things with their horses. There was one Australian eventing rider who I interviewed. Um, this person has won gold medals for Australia, um, has a lengthy background in eventing. And he said to me, you know, when I walk the course, I can stop at a jump and I can look at that jump for half an hour if I want to and think about how I'm going to find my way through that. He said the horse gets, you know, 
quarter of a second mm. to evaluate mm. what's in front of them and make a decision and jump. And he said, if I think that that animal is stupid or that animal doesn't understand or that animal doesn't have intellectual abilities, I can't do my job, you know. So these these riders are having these really critical experiences and they did differentiate often between horses who are capable of that kind of sport and horses who are not. Um, but they're doing really complex things with horses and through that process of doing things with animals, we learn about them. So I think we need to be very respectful of the attributions that people who work with horses and live with horses make about those animals. Um, I think we tend um, to be a little bit too quick, actually, to accept that I can say something meaningful about how you're thinking and feeling right now, purely because we happen to belong to the same species category. Um, but I can't say anything meaningful about how an animal is thinking or feeling because they belong to a different, a different category of species. I think those species binaries need to be challenged, and I think they need to be challenged carefully and sensitively um, and always with a sense of our responsibility to animals. Mm. Um, but there are some really interesting questions that start to come out of this. And I have had students, um, I had a student several years ago who researched um, punishments to dogs um, and attitudes to dogs. And one of the things that she looked at was anthropomorphism um, because we were curious to see whether people who were highly anthropomorphic would hold their animals responsible because they are attributing, you know, human-like virtues to those animals. Um, and therefore, they're assuming that those animals know what they're doing and they're doing it deliberately. You know, you come home from work and your dog's pooed on the floor and you think, wow, you, you, you knew what you were doing. <laughs> is that an anthropomorphic interpretation? Yes. Um, but the opposite, of course, is to um, diminish the animal or to um, not attribute complex mental states to it. And actually what we found was that participants who were high in anthropomorphism were much less likely to punish their, their animals, um, particularly in ways that we would consider to be inappropriate. So mm -hmm. I think um, regardless of scientific debates around what is and isn't attributable to animals in terms of mental states and emotions, what we think about them matters and what we think about them changes how we behave towards them. So that has become a really um, important direction in, in the research that I yep. do now. Yep. All right. I'd like to move on to the, the next area that we talked about, and that was the equine-assisted psychotherapy. So you've done some research there and that you're finding that there's quite a few different, this is a little bit different to equine-assisted therapy. I think you can explain that, but quite a few different areas within our community that can benefit from this. So would you be able to speak about that next? Yeah, absolutely. So equine therapy um, has been, and we can differentiate here between hippotherapy, which is designed to result in physical benefits for human beings. Um, equine therapy typically is designed 
purely to result in psychological benefits. Now, there are a number of different models. There's equine-assisted learning. There's equine, there's a gala, which is a quite a dominant modality increasingly in Australia. Um, equine therapy has been very slow to develop in Australia. It's often seen as tokenistic um, because a lot of research has found that there are benefits to it, but the benefits are not necessarily long-lasting. So there have been some questions raised around this. Um, but it's quite a popular and it's a growing area of therapy in Australia alongside um, emotional support animals. Um, and some of the listeners might be familiar with, with some of the quite humorous but actually quite interesting conversations that are starting to develop around emotional support animals. Um, of course, there was that incident earlier this year where somebody tried to bring a peacock onto a, um, a flight, I think, leaving the United States as an emotional support animal and there are a few, few few questions raised about that but we are seeing more and more therapeutic modalities of a psychological orientation um, that link in with psychological practice um, and my interest in this area there's a there's a couple of things I'm interested in but in terms of the cohorts that can benefit from this um, equine therapy has been quite popular with um, young male adolescents. Um, it has been trialled with children um, experiencing autism, um, ADHD, conduct disorder, things like that. Um, it's also being used, the horse is often used as a kind of a metaphor um, for what's going on in somebody's um, life. So, for example, if um, a therapy participant is asked to go and bridle a horse or go and um, catch a horse and bring it over and the horse resists, that moment of resistance can be used in the therapeutic context to create um, dialogue around how that person responds to resistance and what kind of moments of resistance they might experience in their lives, you know, outside of therapy. So the horse is often used in quite a metaphoric way in that space, although it depends a little bit on the modality. Um, and then, of course, some equine therapy involves cohorts who are experiencing quite serious mental health disturbances. So there's quite a range of different populations that can be implicated here. The interest that I have in this area um, crosses a few different veins, but something that I'm quite um, passionate about is the role of the animal in this process. Because if you look at the dialogue around equine therapy, there's been a tremendous emphasis on the use of horses, and I use the word use here very deliberately, but the use of horses to benefit humans. Now, it's a fantastic thing if um, horses are able to benefit humans, and I think those of us who interact with them would wholeheartedly endorse that as a valid um, thing. So seeing them used in a formal therapeutic context makes wonderful sense. Um, and I don't for a second want to diminish, diminish that in any way. Um, but I think we also have to think really critically about this. Horses and dogs are quite unique as species in their sensitivity to emotional contagion. So one of the rationales that underpins equine therapy is that horses and dogs are um, 
sensitive to human emotions. They can pick up on the emotional reactions of a person and respond in a way that provides opportunity for feedback to that person. So if we take that argument and we say that that is a, a key reason why animals are good for us and good for therapy, um, it follows from that that the animal is also capable of attuning emotionally to possibly some quite um, disturbing, pathological and difficult emotional moments. Um, you know, often people come to therapy because they're going through something or they have gone through something that is highly traumatic. So I have an interest in examining the effects of equine therapy on the animals. Um, I think we have to take them seriously in this space and think about them doing work. Now, as a human, if I had taken a different pathway and decided to become a registered psychologist, part of my psychological training would involve being regularly debriefed um, after encountering, you know, vicarious trauma by hearing about the experiences of individuals who are, you know, dealing with some really difficult things. So, that's how human work proceeds. But what about animal work? Um, this is a form of work. The animals are um, engaging in a context where they don't have complete autonomy um, over what they do, although some therapists definitely take animal rights very seriously in this space. Um, so I'm really interested in how what therapy means for humans, but also what it means um, for animals and what it means for horses in particular and dogs, given that they are both um, commonly used in, in animal therapies. And I think we have a moral obligation to think about what that means for them. Um, and I think it's entirely possible that their lives are enriched by those encounters that they have in a therapeutic space. But I think we need to not take that for granted and not assume um, that that is is the case. And certainly, um, you know, I spoke earlier about my pony who had had traumatic experiences of his own. Sometimes those kind of horses can be really wonderful candidates for equine therapy. But sometimes being around humans who are experiencing trauma or have experienced trauma can affect some horses in, in particular ways. So I think we need to think about all of those things um, quite carefully and really think about the ethics of what we're doing from both a human and an animal perspective. Yes, yes, it's an area that, as you say, it's a widening area. We're getting more and more information. So I'm interested to stay in touch with you as you explore that a little bit mm. more. Yeah, mm. yeah. Absolutely. Rachel, there's something else I'd like to talk to you about, and we talked briefly earlier on about it, and that is the life cycle of vets or the culture of veterinarians. Mm. You know, a lot of people, mm. they love animals when they're young and they say, I, when I grow up, I want to be a vet and all the, you know, the <laughs> aunties yeah, and uncles and absolutely. grandparents go around and say, oh, such and such loves animals. She's going to grow up and be a vet. And, and you, know, you hear this story so many times. I think part of it is that they don't realise what a broad area there is within the horse industry. You know, even you mm. yourself, you sort of went in not thinking that you would do anything with horses and were pretty excited to realise that that this, again, is another niche within the horse industry. There's so many different areas that are broadening and expanding. But 
this veterinary is a bit of a worry. It's been a very traditional way of working with animals. But um, would you like to speak about that and some of the the research and the disturbing research, I think, that we find about it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, this is, I'd love to speak about this because this is something that I've been probably, the word is probably obsessed actually with for a while. I think you've described it perfectly. Um, the child who grows up loving animals and chooses to become a vet is possibly the very last person who is going to flourish in that space. Now, that is not always the case, but um, in Australia and in there is a growing awareness of the vicarious trauma that is experienced by veterinarians. And also, you know, I mean, we've focused on the outcomes for a long time. What's going on? These people have, um, veterinarians have one of the highest suicide rates of any occupational category. They um, have a very high turnover rate. So they tend to train for about six to seven years and they tend to practice for about six to seven years. So that's quite a wastage. Um, they also have quite a terrible university debt when they leave university in comparison to what they earn when they graduate. Um, so there's financial pressures. There's access to lethal medication. Um, there's uncertain working hours. There's all these kind of things that the research has examined, and we absolutely need to think about those things. Um, but there's a conversation in this space that I want to develop and think about really critically, and it's got to do with a couple of things. So um, first of all, there's quite a bit of research on attitudes to death and euthanasia in relation to veterinarians. Obviously, animals have shorter lifespans than us. So as a vet, um, your life work involves being Dr. Death um, a lot of the time, which in itself can carry you know, a certain degree of trauma. Um, but there's a bigger part of this conversation and there's a few different dimensions to it. So one thing is the expectations of the professional. And I suspect that the way I think there's been great efforts that have been made to um, train veterinarians to manage their emotions and their stress, but I think there's so much more that we need to do. And I think there is a, a need to unlearn certain things that are being kind of enculturated in, in veterinarian schools in Australia, especially. This really concerns me, actually. Um, there are lots of vet students at the university where I teach um, and at other universities in Australia who have gone on to suicide. They are not even practicing as vets yet, and they have a higher suicide rate than yeah. the general university population. Mm. So this is a really, really big question. And um, certainly it's something there's, there's funding and there's attention that's being um, you know, given to this right now. But I was approached um, a while ago by a vet student who was looking to do research on this and we were talking about the mental health concerns. And I remember distinctly, she said to me, I want to do something about this, but we can't call it mental health. And I said to her, why? And she said, if we talk about this as mental health, none of the students will want to be involved. They don't want to be identified as at risk. She said, we have to talk about it as professionalism or professional attitudes or professional behavior because everybody wants to be professional. Nobody wants to talk about mental health. 
And I spoke to one of my senior colleagues in psychology about this, and he echoed the concerns that I had when you when you don't call it what it is. Um, although I understand the concerns of this student, when you don't call it what it is, you perpetuate the stereotype. And there seems to be a really strong stereotype um, around mental health and seeking help within the vet context. Um, but I think there's a there's a link here that hasn't yet been explored. So I'm about to embark on some research in this area that looks at mental health and looks at um, you know, vicarious trauma and burnout and stress levels and all of those things. But I don't want to look at those things necessarily in relation to personality characteristics or, you know, that conversation has been addressed. Is there something different about vets? Are they somehow more susceptible to, you know, not being able to cope with certain things? And I I don't think that's the right question to ask. I think we need to look at the structural features of the vet culture. And I really want to explore what's going on in relation to the attitudes that people have towards animals and also the emotions um, that they have. Because similar a little bit to the equestrians that I interviewed when they became elite riders, they really had to separate their personal lives from their professional lives, or some of them felt that they did. And they would distinguish between horses that they could care about, that they had intimate relationships with, that were their horses, versus horses that they might train for a short period of time and then never see again. Vets are dealing in death, but they're also dealing in animal lives and they're dealing in human lives. Um, and I think often we don't prepare vet students enough for the fact that they will be dealing with human emotions around animal lives, but also confronting their own ideas about what is required of them. Um, and the expectation seems to be that we can ask vets to euthanize animals, um, turn away animals because they can't constantly undercut um, their own practice by paying for animals to have procedures. So they're turning away animals that could have lived but are not going to live because they are not going to fund that and the owner can't afford to or isn't willing to. So they're in all these ethical quandaries and I don't know that we fully recognize those for what they are. Um, some of the time. So if a medical, you know, the analogy that I often use is if a medical doctor makes a mistake while they're working or they have a patient who they just simply cannot save, it's acknowledged that there will be some some level of, of trauma, there'll be some kind of emotional effect that results from that. Um, and I suspect in the vet context, and this is something that I'm investigating, I'm not sure of the answer to this, but I suspect in the vet context, there's far less recognition. Um, and I think this is particularly an issue for female vets who are um, kind of monitored perhaps a little bit differently sometimes um, than their male counterparts, because we tend to look on emotion as being you know, a possible weakness um, in a professional context. So I'm really keen to see how people are managing emotions. And the other thing that I'm really interested in in relation to this is in vet practice now, I think there's an increasing divide between the pet context where you are essentially kind of like a, almost a pediatrician. You know, I mean, I've got I've got two cats and if something happened to one of those cats, I would spend thousands of dollars to save their lives. Um, and there's a growing number of people 
who fit that category, who, whose pet animals are valued on par with their children. So you have that context um, and then you have, and this is very relevant to the equestrian industry because horses fall right across the spectrum, um, you have other contexts where pragmatic concerns are what drives your practice or what's expected to drive your practice. Um, and I think this can sometimes be the case in the racing industry, but it's also um, something where, you know, production animals, um, you know, are valued as products. And we have, you know, veterinarians who are training across both of those contexts and some of them also work across both of those contexts. So I think that's, you know, I think there's an incredible amount of complexity in how animals are viewed. And there's a book um, that I love that has been written by Hal Herzog. He, Herzog, I should say, um, and it's called Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. And it really speaks to the contradictions that I think vets face when they interact with animals professionally. Mm-hmm. I think that summed it up. It's um, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. Yeah. Some we eat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you about working in the horse industry, being in the position to do the research, you know, that you do. And you've, you know, as you said, you've sort of slipped into it almost. You didn't plan to have a career with horses, but now you have and you're exploring all these different areas. What do you think is the best thing about working in the horse industry? The work that I do on human animal relationships is easily the most important part of the work that I do as an academic. And it's Mm -hmm. actually taken me a while to own that. Psychology is a very defensive science. We are on the margins of science. I think there's far more art to psychology than we often own up to. Um, We've tried very hard to be a real science for a very long time. And that has led us to think about certain things and to avoid other things. And one of the things that we've avoided has been human-animal interaction. Um, And I have no doubt that if I had gone to do research on intraspecies relationships in my PhD, you know, it would have been viewed quite differently. So in a sense, working in human-animal relationships and doing research in that space is like going out on a limb a little bit. It's not a mainstream aspect of psychology. And yet it's also one of the most dominant growing areas in psychology. So it's a really exciting space to be in. But I think for me, a revelation came around a year ago. In recent years, I've been attending lots of multidisciplinary conferences, um, so academic conferences around the world. And at those conferences, there will be philosophers, there will be vets, there will be anthropologists, there are artists in some of those those conference spaces, people from all different scientific and non-scientific backgrounds. And through interacting with those individuals and hearing about their academic work, but also their lives, I really become much more aware of the fact that there's an activism to the work that I do. And it's taken me a while to own this because activism is kind of a dirty word in in science. Um, you know, we are, we are supposed to be sort of um, objectively distanced from the things that we do. Um, and there are times when my work calls for that. But The work that I do is heavily influenced by a desire to improve animal lives and and to make humans, myself 
included, think more critically about how we interact with animals in different contexts and different spaces. So owning that activism and bringing that into my practice and actually sitting with the question, um, I've, I've come back to this a lot this year especially, I have a post-it note which sits on my desk that says what's important to me and how does this shape what I do next? And I come back to that question all the time, even particularly actually when I'm in the early stages of designing a research project. Um, And I think often in academia, we're so busy producing that we forget to ask why we're doing the work and why it matters um, and who is it going to influence. So that's become really central to me and bringing animal, the stories of animals out in that process. It's actually very hard work to do sometimes because Linda Burke, who is one of my PhD markers and is a very respected academic in the UK, said to me recently, when we talk about, when we do research on humans and animals, we often actually reinforce the binary that all of us are sort of actually trying to break down. So once you start to think critically about what you're doing, it's often harder to do what you're doing because as you think critically about it, you become aware of things that can make the work uncomfortable. It can make you think differently about the work that you're doing and the impact that it has. So there's lots of questions that come up along the way, but it's really critical to me to think about what's important to me and how does this shape, you know, what I'm going to do next and how is it going to affect all of the stakeholders that are invested in that space. Um, When I was doing my PhD, I was really conscious of the fact that some of my findings were quite critical of equestrian sport. And I didn't want to upset, you know, the participants who, who had given me their time and had contributed to the research and were all, you know, heavily invested in equestrianism. Um, So I was really conscious of their you know, I think every researcher thinks about their participants picking up their work and reading it and saying, well, actually, I don't agree with you all. You know, <laughs> think about those voices. Yep. Um, but there are also the voices of animals um, that are relevant in that space. And we don't always listen to their voices as much. Um, but both voices are important. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. Just thinking about your proudest moment, but also the biggest challenge. What do you think is the proudest moment so Mm. far? You're doing so much in so many different areas, but is there one thing that you would have to bring out as your proudest moment? Yeah, look, to be honest, I've thought about this um, Mm. and often I think your proudest moment is also your biggest challenge. Um, That's from someone who says about the answer closes the question, so yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a horse from around the age of, I think I started riding him in my teens, my late teens, um, and continued to ride him for a number of years. He was a horse, um, his name is King, and I had Really, some wonderful success with him. We were starting to build a bit of a name um, in dressage, and he contracted Ross River fever um, and became horribly ill. And the experience of that illness transformed him. He'd always been a very personable horse, a very social horse. He's a quarter horse thoroughbred cross, and he's very quarter horsey in the sense of being in your personal space. But he knew 
I believe that we were caring for him and keeping him alive. And he was sick for quite a long time. And it was a real transition point because I couldn't compete him. He was completely away from competition and he never really, you know, he now has quite bad arthritis as a result of the Ross River fever. So he never really came back um, after that illness. But what we had and what he meant to me became clearer on the other side of that experience. And if I'm really reflecting on that, I think the relationship that we had was something that led me to the PhD research that I did. So that relationship um, and managing that relationship and managing other terminal points in human-animal relationships, not just with horses, but I've grown up around animals. I'm a massive dog, cat, horse, you know, all sorts of animals um, I have close relationships with and they die. Um, Lots of animals that I care about have already died at different points. Um, And when a human being dies, society enacts various structures to kind of routinize that that death and burial process. You know, the funeral parlor takes control of lots of aspects of that, which can be quite confronting. And there are no such conveniences when animals are involved. Um, It's a confronting kind of hands-on process. And it's been really important to me to be there right until the end and to take responsibility for that animal's life in so much as I possibly can. Um, So to honour their lives, you know, in some ways being able to be there when it's hard is my proudest moment. And that's not an academic reflection, but it's kind of had implications for my academic work. Um, And of course, confronting my own inconsistencies in relations to animals. I mean, we all have them. And when you start to think about them, and then you start to navigate those in real time, in the real world, you know, there's some pretty uncomfortable things that can come up from that. And I often think, you know, when you're uncomfortable, you're learning. Yes. <laughs> so yes. sitting with that discomfort and sitting mm-hmm. with that learning has been a great challenge, but it's also something that I'm really proud of. Um, and, and I guess thinking critically um, about animals and animal lives it's something like anything. It's a muscle that you exercise. And I was not, you know, born this way necessarily. I, I have spent a lot of time in an academic space, but also interacting with horses personally. And both of those experiences matter. Um, science tends to operate in quite an isolated way sometimes. And we, you know, we separate ourselves from the rest of our lives. But actually what happens in your personal life um, has has major implications for work and the work that you do. And, and that's definitely been the case for me. So managing that has been a really important thing and managing the tension around what I'm producing and what I want to produce um, is, is important as well. Okay. Okay. You've talked about quite a few areas that you're interested in researching mm. and studying more, doing more with. What are you looking forward to now? What are your plans over the next 12 months? As far as horses and your equine research goes, you know, what are you working on now? What are you planning to do over the next 12 months, two years? Well, my big 
goal, one of my big long-term goals, and mm-hmm. academia is a terrible space. Um, any academics listening to this will probably relate. It's a terrible space for focusing on the short-term goals because you can get them, yes. you can see the end point attached to them, whereas the bigger goals often are not so clearly demarcated. Um, but something that I've been slowly working on for a very long time is developing some subjects um, that I would like to see taught in at the university where I currently reside, but um, possibly in other spaces as well, on human-animal interaction. So I would like to see these as an elective that could be incorporated into some of our psychology courses, but I, I think such a subject would also have relevance in VET and um, equine science courses as well. Um, I'd also love to see the development of a subject that really focuses on mental health in a variety of occupational categories that involve working with animals. So vet is a major one, but there are others as well. And really formalize, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's still kind of the elephant in the room when it comes to human-animal interaction in academia. So formalizing that and bringing that into the curriculum in, in a formal way, not only do I think it would make our lives and animal lives better to to have that incorporated into academia. It's also something that, I mean, I have multiple research areas. This is my primary area, but I have others. And every single year when the call goes out for research supervisors, I get just an increasingly (laughs) large number of students wanting to do research on human-animal relationships. And when we do the research, I had a student this year who recruited she recruited like 600 participants within two weeks for a study on animals and um, dogs or something. And and I think it was 600, 500 maybe. She ended up with around 700 participants. But people are just, people care. They really care about animals. So I'm really keen to foster that in an academic space. Um, And of course, um, the VET project is a really big focus for me moving forward. Um, But I think the other thing, and I'm just thinking about this now, um, is engaging. It's really easy to always be thinking about what you're going to do next and what you haven't done. And sometimes um, it's important to take a step back as well and, and really reflect on what you have done and what you need to do with what you've done. So my PhD research um If I publish in scientific journals, that's great for my career because other scientists read it and it looks good for me on paper, but it doesn't really reach the community. Um, It doesn't reach back into um, the equestrian federations and organizing bodies that have control over how equestrian sports look. So something that is on my mind at the moment is how to feed back some of the research findings um, from the PhD research that I did because I think um, I really care about equestrian sports um, and I know there are some who feel that they should be abolished and then there are other people who think that's complete nonsense. But I would really like to see us develop a space where equestrianism can continue, but it can continue only in a way that is ethical and and prioritises the welfare of the animals. So the fact that, you know, a dominant number of participants from my research felt that performing well and having a close horse rider relationship was somewhat of an antithesis, you know, that's really problematic um, and that's concerning to me. And I think we need to really scrutinise the sport um, and think about, you know, what kind of cultures exist, particularly within particular sporting disciplines. But I think whenever financial investment is a part of 
our relationships with animals, there are certain trigger points um, that, that open up as a result of that and, and we need to think really critically about that. So that's a little bit of, uh, I guess, of what I'm thinking about in the coming months. Um, but um, we'll see. We will see. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes as you plan, for me it's a balance between planning and staying open. Yes, yes. Well, we'd certainly love to have you back on Horse Chats to talk a bit more in depth about your research because you've talked about it and you've given us the top three mm-hmm. three points, but I'm sure that there's there's more, a lot more that we could learn from you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to come back. Yeah. Great. Rachel, just in a few sentences, can you summarize your philosophy with the horse human relationships? Academics are usually not very good at a few sentences, but I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> I think in a single sentence the philosophy of what I'm doing and what I'm trying to do is simply to take animal lives seriously. Curiosity is a central part of mindfulness and we hear about mindfulness as being key to relating to animals, um, especially animals like dogs and horses that are so reactive and receptive to human emotions. But if I go back to that quote by Hugh McKay, you know, the answer closes the question, stay with the question. Thinking about those difficult things um, and being curious about those things, being curious about yourself and how you respond to animals, particularly in terms of the contradictions, you know, around different species, not just horses, but right across the spectrum. And I guess the other thing that has become a part of my philosophy is to really consider and take seriously the connections between the things that matter to you. I spent some time last year trying to map out a framework for the work that I was trying to do across different contexts. I have done um, some work around Indigenous Australians and I'm also really passionate about the lives of women and the experiences of women in in particular contexts. And then, of course, there's the work that I do on animals. And there is actually a framework that crosses over into each of those areas and making some of those connections has helped me to think about those areas in deeper ways. But if you can be paid to do work that you're good at, work that you love and work that the world needs, you have an opportunity and I've been profoundly fortunate to have this opportunity to ground your life in something that challenges and energizes you, but most of all requires authenticity. So that has been really foundational for me to connect with that and to connect with the principle of authenticity. And that's where, you know, if I go back to the point that I made before around activism, acknowledging the philosophy, you know, the very question that you're asking me is actually really important because, as I said before, we often just focus on what we're doing. We don't think so much about the why. The why gets lost. Um, And thinking about your philosophy actually does require that you connect back to the why. So I think that's a I think that's a great question actually Mm -hmm. because it it does lead you to think about this. Okay. Okay. All right. Now, how can people contact you, Rachel? So the best way to contact me is probably via email. Um, So I can be contacted um, at r lowercase r h o double g so r hog 
at csu.edu.au. Um, I'm also on Twitter under that um, handle EquineSight. And you're also welcome to phone me if you'd like to have a talk about anything that I've discussed here or anything else that's on your mind uh, on 0269 332748. And if you go onto the School of Psychology at Charles Sturt University webpage, um, you will find me under the list of staff um, and you can read a little bit more there um, about me. Um, so, yeah, but email is probably the best first point of contact and I am always um, really happy. In fact, there's almost nothing that makes me happier than to talk about horses and <laughs> animals. So um, I'm more than happy to talk to anyone who, who has any questions um, or even just ideas and thoughts that they'd like to share. Good, good. Rachel, it's been wonderful. Uh, you know, the areas you've covered, we've, we've got to get you back. You know, we've gone well over an hour. I think you've, you've given us the longest chat yet. And it's, I didn't want to stop you because you had so much good information. And we'd just love to have you back to talk a bit more in some of the areas that we probably glossed over a little bit. I would love that. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. I absolutely love that. I'm sorry for going over time. Oh, no worries. Not a problem at all. You know, I think it'd be very enjoyable and the type of episode that people will come back and, and listen to again because it was so informative. Yep. All right. Well, until next time, thank you very much. And, um, yeah, until next time. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs> Cheers, bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 